Section 37 of Epics and Romances of the Middle Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Howley, andrewjhowley.com. Epics and Romances of the Middle Ages by Wilhelm Wegener. Section 37. Part 3. Section 1. The Carolingian Legends. Chapter 2. Roland. Siege of Vian. Vienne. Kaiser Karl had not been married very long. He held a great assembly of the notables. Count Gerhardt appeared amongst the rest, for he expected that this would be the time chosen by the emperor to invest him with the promised fief of Vienne, Vienne in France, and perhaps also with that of Burgundy. When he received the letter's patent relating to the first of these, he stooped, and in fulfillment of ancient custom would have kissed the emperor's foot. But he staggered, for the empress had stuck out her foot, which he involuntarily touched with his lips in falling. He must have drunk too much burgundy before he would have kissed the foot of the lady, whose rosy mouth he formerly disdained. Wine teaches humility, murmured the courtiers. Gerhardt sprang to his feet, his cheeks flushing with anger. He waited in expectation of the second letter, but the emperor told him that he could not have the fief of burgundy, for the empress, who was also the widow of the last duke, was strongly against it. The count took his leave with a low bow and set out for Vienne, his heart boiling with rage. Arrived there, he called out his troops and sent to ask his brother, the mighty lord of Apulia, for help against his sovereign. He knew that the emperor's heart would henceforth be turned against him, for was not the empress that same widowed duchess of Burgundy whose proffered love he had rejected? The brothers took the field at the head of a great army. With them came their younger brother Rainier, his son Olivier, a bold warrior, and his daughter Auda, who was marvelously beautiful, and brave as one of the northern Valkyrs. Karl besieged the stronghold on the river Rhone, where they had taken up their abode. The place seemed impregnable, for it was defended by brave men, rocks, and river. Sometimes the besiegers tried to take the citadel by storm, and sometimes part of the garrison would make an attack on the enemy beneath the walls. On such occasions, Auda would now and then accompany her friends dressed in full armor, and would fight with the best. Once, when she had done so, she found that her opponent was none other than strong Roland. He disarmed her without even drawing his sword, and took her prisoner. Her brother Olivier, seeing what had happened, at once came to the rescue. While the heroes were engaged in single combat, Auda made good her escape, and took refuge in the castle, where she was soon afterwards joined by the rest of the party. The siege continued. The Lady Auda often stood on the battlements and helped to fling stones on the heads of those warriors who came within reach of their missiles. One day Roland came with the rest, and, seeing the maiden, asked her name and parentage. When she had told him, and he had answered by informing her that he was Count Roland, a nephew of the Emperor, he went on to say that he loved her, and would never cease to woo her, even though it were at the cost of his life. At this moment Olivier appeared, and flung a spear at him upon which Roland challenged him to single combat on an island in the Rhone. The heroes and their horses were ferried over to the river of the island, and there they fought. Each of the combatants displayed the most heroic valor. At length, when evening was drawing on, a fleecy cloud hovered over them and, coming between them, forced them apart. An angel, wrapped in rosy light, came out of the cloud and said, "'Wherefore do you fight, Christian against Christian?' Why would you shed a brother's blood? I call upon you to be reconciled in the name of the Saviour who died upon the cross. Be of one heart and of one mind, 
and turn your arms against the adversaries of the true faith. The angel then waved a palm branch as a sign of farewell and vanished. The two men exchanged a hearty shake of the hand and sat down to talk over matters of much moment to both of them. Before they separated, Olivier had promised to use his influence with his sister in Roland's favor, and the latter had given his word to fight no more against Vienne and its defenders. Now the emperor was very fond of hunting, and used to go on many an expedition into the neighboring country in search of game. On one such occasion, he and his companions were attacked and hard-pressed by a party of Viennese under the leadership of Olivier. At one moment, it seemed as if Karl must lose his life in the struggle. Olivier, seeing this, protected him with his shield. When the combat was over, the emperor and Olivier had some talk together, and the former was so touched and pleased with the noble and generous disposition of the young man that he not only promised to make peace, but to appoint Olivier one of his paladins, to forgive Gerhardt, and to restore the fiefs he held under him. There was great joy in Vienne and all the neighboring country when the news of the peace was spread abroad. Smiling faces were everywhere to be seen, and happiest of all was perhaps Kaiser Karl himself. A few days later, a time was fixed for the public betrothal of Roland and Auda. Great preparations were made, and all was done to make the day a joyful one. While the heroes were sitting at the feast in the royal tent, messengers appeared from the banks of the Garonne, who brought the sad news that the Moorish king Igelin had come from Africa with a large army of blacks, had fallen upon Gascony, and laid waste the country with fire and sword. That is good news, said brave Roland, for an angel appeared to my comrade Olivier and me, and told us to fight against the infidel. It is bad news, answered the emperor, for the Moor is a great warrior, and has an immense number of black devils at his back. Listen, noble knights, and I will tell you what happened years ago. After the death of my father Pippin, my stepbrothers, the sons of cunning Bertha, drove me out of my inheritance. I found refuge with the heathen king Marsilio at Saragossa. With the help of brave Diebold, I regained my rights, was crowned king of the Franks at Aich, Aachen, and emperor in Rome. One night St. James, the apostle, appeared to me and commanded me to free his grave, to which there was a yearly pilgrimage, from the yoke of the infidel. I obeyed him and reduced the whole country as far as Galicia, where the apostle lies buried. There I learned that Igelin had come over from Africa and had already reached Pampeluna. I marched back at once and met the Moorish forces near the river Ceres. There was a terrible battle. The Africans fought like very devils. They broke through our ranks and defeat seemed certain. Then the brave Milo, my brother-in-law and your father, nephew Roland, threw himself upon the demons at the head of his men. They fought like heroes and defeated the enemy. But before the victory was quite decided, the noble Milo fell, wounded to death. The loss on both sides was so great that either party retreated on the morrow. Igelin returned to his African deserts, but he seemed to have come back at the head of a larger armor than before, and to have invaded our own land. We must now fight for home and faith, for on this crisis will depend whether Christ or Mahmet shall rule the Franks. I think this much is certain, said Roland. We shall conquer whether we live or die. Was not my father victorious, though he fell at Pampeluna? The Lord would not deny him the martyr's crown when he passed away on that field of blood. Here or there, ye Frankish men, what does it matter which? The crown is ours. As he spoke, his eyes shone with enthusiasm. 
And what is to become of me, whispered Auda, if you do not return? You are the angel that shall give me the palm, either here or there, he answered. And before the assembled knights and ladies, he gave her the kiss of affiance. Ganelon. Next day they marched to meet the enemy, whom they saw when they had at length reached the beautiful land that is watered by the Dordogne. Dordogne. The morning after their arrival, a terrible battle took place between them and the Moors. Roland, Olivier, Ogier, Archbishop Turpin, and the other paladins fought like heroes, and led their men again and again against the foe. At nightfall, and not till then, did the Moors acknowledge themselves beaten. They fled to Pamplona, where they found more troops that had just arrived from Africa. Igeland and his men were impatient to avenge the defeat they had sustained, and they were sure that they could do so, for they trusted in their numbers, their skill, and their profit. Karl did not at once follow the fugitives. He waited for reinforcements from France and from Marsilio, who, although a heathen, had formerly aided him. He sent messengers to him, but soon afterwards learnt that the faithless king had murdered them and had joined the Moors. Then the emperor called his heroes around him and, telling them of the evil tidings he had had, asked them whether they advised him to risk a battle when the enemy's numbers were so overwhelming. "'Let us go forward,' cried brave Roland, before us lie two objects, victory or paradise. Who is it that will draw back? The rest agreed with him, and the horns sounded to battle. And a great battle took place, in which many men were slain on either side, and each party fought with a desperate valor. At last, Igeland fell under the sword of Roland, and then the Moors took flight. The emperor reduced the country to obedience to his rule. Saragossa alone held out, for there Marsilio had taken up his station and determined to defend the town alone until the arrival of the troops his liege, Lord Balagant, Caliph of Babylon, had promised to send to his aid. Karl, remembering his former kindness, had determined to treat Marsilio with the greatest forbearance. He therefore sent Ganelon, one of his paladins, to offer the king terms, and they were these. Marsilio's life should be spared if he would be baptized and become a vassal of the empire. Ganelon would have liked to decline the honor of carrying this message, but he knew the emperor too well to dare remonstrance. The king received the ambassador with all kindness, listened to his message quietly, and begged for a short time to think the matter over and consult his friends. Meanwhile, he led Ganelon over the palace and showed him all his treasures. When he saw that the sight of these things had had the desired effect on the ambassador, he offered him three baggage horse loads of gold three of silver, and three of costly stuffs, if he would turn the emperor's vengeance away from him and save him from becoming a Frankish vassal. Ganelon promised to do all that the heathen wished. Nay, for double the reward, he even promised to detain a division of the Frankish army when the rest had gone away, on the pretext of guarding the country, and then to deliver them into Marsilio's hands. The compact was soon concluded, and each of the contracting parties swore to keep his share of the bargain. Marsilio, who thought little of bloodshed, did not hesitate to hand over some of the nobles of his host as hostages for his good faith, which therefore was not doubted. Ganelon spoke strongly of Marsilio's repentance for the past and promises for the future. And then, when he had succeeded in turning matters as he wished, and the emperor was about to return to France with his whole army in the belief that he now possessed a faithful vassal in Marsilio, went on to persuade him to leave Roland and the other paladins behind at the head of a small force to watch the borders. His eloquence carried all before it, and what he advised was done. He alone, of all the paladins, returned to France with the emperor, while Roland and the other ten remained with six thousand chosen warriors 
to guard the land from a foreign invasion. At Roncesvalles, Vale of Thorns. The heroes spent one quiet day after the army had gone. On the second morning, their outposts came in to announce the approach of a large army, so they got ready for the fight. Roland led his forces to Roncesvalles, a narrow pass between two high mountains, which he was determined to defend. The Moors, more than 20,000 strong, came up with the Franks before they had reached the end of the pass. "'Blow your horn,' said Olivier. "'The Emperor will hear you and return. He cannot have got far yet.' Roland gazed at his great horn, Oliphant, which was hanging at his side. It was made of ivory with gold inlaid, and, when blown by one who understood how to sound it, would send its voice for miles around. "'Look, faithful friend,' said the hero, "'I was given this horn and my good sword Durandot by an angel from heaven. I then swore only to blow the horn in case of utmost need. We are not now in such a case. I think we are strong enough to make these heathen bite the dust. Ha! What do I see? Look, there is the traitor Marsilio. No doubt the faithless Ganelon has betrayed us for much red gold, but we will fight for the good cause. Montjoie, Saint-Denis, up, soldiers of Christ, let us do battle for our holy faith. The heroes and their men rushed on to meet the Moorish hosts, who withstood their furious onslaught with the greatest courage, but after a while fell back and fled, pursued by the Christians, who slew all they came up with. When the heroes had recalled their little army from the pursuit, they made their men sit down and rest. Before they had sat very long, they were startled by a shout behind them of Mahmed, Mahmed, and a great blowing of trumpets and beating of drums. A larger army than that which they had already put to flight was approaching in their rear. Marsilio was at its head. Roland prepared for battle. He sent Count Walter to guard a wooded height, and then, accompanied by his brother Baldwin, brave Olivier, the bold Archbishop Turpin, and the other paladins, advanced with his men against the foe. The battle raged with intensest fury round the leaders. Wild cries and the clash of arms filled the air. At last, Roland flew at Marsilio, but next moment his horse was killed beneath him. He sprang to his feet and fought so desperately that the Moors turned and fled. He looked round and could see none but the dead or dying. He raised his horn to his lips and blew a mighty blast. About a hundred men-at-arms appeared in answer to his call, then came a few more, and lastly Olivier, Baldwin, Archbishop Turpin, and others of the heroes. "'Your horn has a goodly sound and carries far, friend Roland,' said Olivier. "'The emperor must have heard it, and will return and help us. "'It will be high time, in sooth, for see how the wild moors assemble in close order "'and prepare to renew the attack.' "'Up, ye faithful of the Lord,' cried Roland. "'Close your ranks. May Christ preserve us!' "'The hero mounted an Arab horse he had caught a moment before "'and took his place at the head of his men. "'Soon spears were hurtling through the air and swords were clashing.' Many a doughty deed was done by small and great in the Christian force, but fight as they might, the Franks were so few in number that it seemed as if the Moors must finally prevail. Olivier fell, defending his friend and brother-in-arms. Roland's sword did such terrible execution that the Moors once more retreated in fear, and the hero was too weary to pursue them. His wounded horse fell dead beneath him, and he, bleeding from many wounds and feeling that his end was near, staggered into a neighboring gorge, and sank upon the ground at the foot of a rock. Then raising his eyes to heaven, he whispered, Lord, give me grace in thy sight. Receive, if so be that thou hearest me, this pledge 
of my submission to thy will. So saying, he held up his gauntlet. A soft breeze passed over his face, and an invisible hand took the gauntlet and bore it away. The hero then lifted his sword, Durandart, and tried to break it against the rock, that it might not fall into the hands of the moors. But the marble rock was split by the blow, while the sword remained unharmed. He now blew his horn for the third time. The worthy Archbishop Turpin lived up to him. Then came Baldwin, Roland's half-brother, his faithful squire Thiedrich, and bold Walter, who had defended the height committed to his charge until all his men were slain. Time passed slowly with the wounded men. At last they heard the glad sound of horns blowing and the clanking of armor. Kaiser Karl had come back to their assistance, but before he arrived, Roland had gone to the realms of eternal peace. His faithful squire told the emperor, with tears in his eyes, that he had seen one of God's angels come to receive his master's soul. Then he went on to tell of Marsilio's faithlessness, of the battles which had that day been fought, and of the suspicion they all felt that Ganelon had betrayed them into the hands of the moor. "'You were right there,' said the emperor. "'The traitor deceived me also. I wanted to return the moment I heard Count Roland's horn, but Ganelon dissuaded me, saying that my nephew must only be hunting.' The bodies of the Frankish soldiers were buried, while those of the paladins who had lost their lives at Roncesvalles, amongst whom were Turpin, Roland, Olivier, and Walter, were to be taken away and embalmed for burial in France. Ganelon was at the same time arrested and bound. These things done, the emperor marched against the Moors, who, meanwhile, had been reinforced by the arrival of Caliph Balagant of Babylon with hosts of followers. The battle between the Christian and Moorish forces lasted two days, and was then decided in favor of the Franks. Balagant died on the field, and Marsilio at Saragossa. This victory gave Spain to the conqueror. The emperor returned to France. Halt was made by the vine-clad banks of the Dordogne, and the bodies of the fallen heroes were interred at Blève, after which the march to Paris was resumed. There the Feast of Victory was held, and when it was over, Kaiser Karl sent out for Aich, where Ganelon was tried before a jury of twelve of his peers. He was sentenced to prove his innocence by single combat against Thiedrich, Roland's faithful squire. As Ganelon was much weakened by his imprisonment, he was allowed to choose any one he liked to act as proxy for him. He chose Pinabel, one of the most famous swordsmen of his day, but that availed him nothing. God fought for Thiedrich, and Pinabel was overthrown. Ganelon was then sentenced to be torn to pieces by wild horses. Soon after this, fair Auda came to Aich in search of her betrothed. None of the warriors had courage to tell her the truth, so they referred her to the emperor, and he told her with tears in his eyes. Dead, she said. Roland dead. With these words, she sank lifeless to the ground. So they took her away and buried her beside her hero in the vault at Blaif. End of section 37